0: Welcome to Fill the Gap, the official podcast series of the CMT Association, hosted by David Lundgren and Tyler Wood. This monthly podcast will bring veteran market analysts and money managers into conversations, that will explore the interviewees investment philosophy, their process and decision making tools. By learning more about their key mentors, early influences and their long careers in financial services, Fill the Gap will highlight lessons our guests have learned over many decades and multiple market cycles. Join us in conversation with the men and women of Wall Street who discovered, engineered and refined the discipline of technical market analysis. Fill the Gap is brought to you with support from Optima, a professional charting and data analytics platform. Whether you're a professional analyst, portfolio manager, or trader, Optima provides advanced technical and quantitative software to help you discover financial opportunities. Candidates in the CMT program gain free access to these powerful tools during the course of their study. Learn more at Optima.com. Good afternoon, Dave Lundgren, and welcome to Fill the Gap, the official podcast of the CMT Association. How are you doing this afternoon? Excellent, Tyler. Great to see you again, as always. As always. And what a treat this episode has been with none other than the godfather of technical analysis, Mr. Ralph Acampora, CMT. Tell me, Dave, what was your favorite part of this interview with Ralph?
1: It's funny. One of the big upsides for me in doing this series has been rediscovering some of the books that some of our guests have written over the years. And, you know, I'd read them when they came out. There are so many books out there, you just forget them after you read them. And in preparation for each of these discussions, I've gone back and reviewed the books. And and it was the case with Louise's book and Walter Diemer's books, plural. (laughs) But with Ralph's book, which he wrote in the 90s, called Mega Markets. Obviously, he talked about the bull market that was going on, which, again, was in the late 90s. But what the real value of that book was the in-depth analysis he did of the preceding three mega markets and what the commonalities were amongst those three markets. And what he found after a great deal of work was that it's low inflation and low interest rates, peacetime, Mm -hmm. and some sort of technological revolution, which is often spawned off from the preceding war where the government spends... You know, some massive percentage of GDP in order to win that war. And in so doing, they advance technology to a point where it helps them win that war. But then, after, during peacetime, they actually commercialize that technology, technology. And that ends up being a very big driver of the impending mega market. And of course, he identified the 90s as being one of those environments then. And what I found really interesting was in his summary comments about the markets today that although we didn't go to war with a country, we did on a global scale, we did go to war with a disease, a pandemic. And Mm -hmm. of course, the governments around the globe spent very large percentages of their GDP to win that war, spent a lot of money on technology. And now we have, as the economies normalize and reopen, we're going back to quote unquote Mm peacetime, low interest rates, low inflation, hopefully that remains the case. Mm -hmm. But then this technology works its way into the economy. And when you look at the charts, as a technician, you always want to try to have these Understandings of what's happening from the macro perspective, but then look at the charts. Man, it sure does look like it could be a pretty explosive Molotov cocktail, even though
0: it's in peacetime. <laughs> <laughs> the fifth mega market, so to speak. That's what he yeah. It. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went down the rabbit hole the other night looking into genomics research and the newer field of proteomics, studying proteins, which is all the basis of the mRNA vaccines. And it's going to be fascinating to watch how that plays out. But certainly, you know, for for Ralph, history is so important. And I I think for the entire technical community, providing context to their firms and their clients, understanding the story that the charts are telling us, but also paying attention to how, as Mark Twain said, history often rhymes, even Mm -hmm. when it doesn't repeat. And I think Ralph provides that to us, I think, in a couple of ways. One, history of the markets, and he is truly passionate about understanding where we've come from and the the effects of not just market participants, but also presidents and and world leaders and macroeconomic forces. But he's also a real historian of the CMT Association and the the Market Technicians Association. I think it was only fitting that the co-founder of the organization, young 20-year-old Ralph and his buddy Johnny Brooks, you know, pounding the pavement on Wall Street, deciding that technical analysts deserve their fair shake and needed a place to gather and share ideas. I mean, that's really the, the basis why any of us are here and how far we have come that's the key takeaway for the CNT Association to
1: uh, recall. And, you know, we talk about Luis Yamada and Walter Deemer and Bob Farrell and all the legends of the business and how much of a key role they played in the CNT Association. But if you want to reduce it down to brass tacks, these mm-hmm. are the two gentlemen who actually founded the organization. Correct.
0: Right? That's really,
1: truly where it started. Those were the
0: seeds, yeah. It's incredible that 50 years later, right, our organizations got started in the late 60s, so we're actually beyond the 50-year mark. Ralph continues to contribute in so many ways. I joined the organization 10 years ago, and it was Ralph and his infectious enthusiasm for the, you know, his passion for technical analysis that it's so convincing. How could you not want to investigate more and learn more when you spend any time with Ralph? And obviously other guests have said the exact same thing. Luis Yamada got into the business and started to learn technical analysis by taking Ralph and Alan's course at the New York Institute of Finance. And so did Frank Teixeira. Episode five, he talks about, you know, Ralph being the hook and why he Became so passionate about understanding this side of the business. So it's worth noting that Ralph taught at the New York Institute of Finance for well over 40 years, and he's way too humble to mention his class roster. But I think for everybody out there, if if you look at the titans of the street, anybody with a technical perspective, you can probably trace that right back to Ralph's classes at the New York Institute of Finance. And certainly he continues today. His legacy to the industry, both in terms of education. He teaches at St. Thomas University in Minnesota. And Ralph himself is larger than life, but so are his charts. (laughs) Especially now, yeah. Have you booked your ticket to Minnesota to go see Ralph's barn?
1: I have not yet, but it's definitely on the calendar at some point this summer because it's something I definitely want to see. What we're talking about here is is a large barn in Minnesota that's on Ralph's property that he painted the the history of the Dow
0: on the side of the barn. And Mm it goes around more than one side, correct? Correct. Multiple sides going back through the Cowles index and, and Ralph's actually continuing to curate a museum of financial history, both his own career, 50 years on Wall Street and some incredible items from the New York Stock Exchange, as well as a real deep dive into the history of markets going back to the Civil War. We're all on bated breath on the edge of our seats, waiting for Ralph's next book about the history of financial markets. And certainly for all of you listening, hopefully you have a chance to meet Ralph in person. He's a frequent guest at conferences and seminars around the world, speaks to students all the time, and he is just as vibrant today as he was probably in the first few days on the streets of Wall Street, just pushing the the passion for technical analysis. Yeah, yeah it was an honor to interview him. Absolutely, so with that, we hope you enjoy Episode six with Ralph Akampora, CMT.
1: Welcome to the sixth episode of Fill the Gap, the official podcast of the CMT Association. Our guest this month is none other than the legendary Ralph Akampora. Ralph, welcome to the Fill the Gap.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me.
1: It's a real pleasure to have you with us. You're so generous with your time. I've in preparation for today's discussion. You know, I've listened to a lot of the interviews you've given over the years and you've just been super generous, of course, with your time in that regard, as well as all that you've given to the technical community, the investment community. You've been a real stalwart for all of us. As you like to say, giants standing upon the shoulders of giants. I hope your shoulders aren't getting too tired. We still need you.
2: No, that was that was a phrase that Alan Shaw coined. Many years ago, when we started the association in 1969, 1970, and he was talking about the generation of technicians before him, Uh and maybe later we'll talk about Ralph Rottenham and all the others. They they were giants. They really were. In their own field, they were giants.
1: No question. So why don't we get started with just a, a discussion of how you got actually into the business, but also, in particular, how you found your way to technical analysis. Tell us a little bit about that before we get really started into the the later years.
2: You really want my story? Because I really do, I really do. Yeah, well, it started out as an automobile accident. I was in the seminary, studying for the priesthood in the 1960s. And I went home on Mother's Day to visit mom, of course. My father hands me the keys to his brand new car. It was three days old, the car. She put a scratch on it, I'll tell
1: you.
2: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, I know. Well, I was part, I was stopped at a stop sign in a tr- trailer truck. 40 tons at 60 miles an hour wipes me out.
1: Oh, my goodness. So I wound
2: up in a the hospital. They did spinal fusion. I'm three months in the hospital bed with a body cast. They had me hanging by wire from the ceiling. <laughs> no air conditioning in the, in the hospitals in those days. And my father's very good friend, Bill Downey, who got me the fabulous surgeon, Dr. Frederick Thompson, he was the back surgeon. I'm very proud to say I had the Thompson bone in my back. And Mr. Downey every day would come to the hospital because he lived nearby. And one day I said to him, Mr. D, I said, I'm not going back to school in September. And he said, what are you going to do with your life? I said, I don't know. I could be a school teacher, a social worker. I said, but I enjoy reading this stuff. Every day he would throw the Wall Street Journal in the, in the bed. And that was my first exposure to Wall Street.
1: Fantastic.
2: And he said, oh, I can get your job. He knew everybody. This guy was unbelievable. He takes me to the director of research at Smith Barney, which was the bo- research boutique in those days. And the director of research looks at my resume. And he says, oh, a defrocked priest. I said, no, I didn't quite get that far. So he taps me <laughs> on the head. He said, you go home, get an MBA, come back, I'll give you a job. Well, I didn't want to go out of school. I want to go out and you know live it up. I saw in the New- Wall Street Journal, a little ad said, junior analysts wanted no experience necessary. I said, well, that's my job. I was still on crutches. I went over to this guy. I think he was afraid I was going to hit him over the head with one of the crutches. He said, oh, stop, stop. I, say, I said, I'll wash windows, do floors, I'll I'll do everything. He hands me a book. He said, you read this book and come in Monday. The book was Edwards and McGee's book on go. technical knowledge. Yeah. And that changed my life.
1: The Bible. Then right? I started, That's the new Bible I, season, yep, right?
2: <laughs> yep. Yep. And then I, I went to the New York Institute of Finance, took classes. That's where I met Alan Shaw, who was the teacher at the time of the basic class, and he hired me from class. That's how it started, by accident.
1: So you didn't have any, I guess, fundamental indoctrination into the business that you had to overcome. You just kind of went right into the technicals just by sheer happenstance and the circumstances of your life. Yes, because
2: that job that that I got was with a mutual fund. Those days were very, I don't think there were very many mutual funds. And the man that started that company was Harold X. Screedy, who was... a former economic advisor to President Eisenhower. And I asked Mr. Screeter one day, I said, because I was doing point and figure charts. I had I was responsible of all their libraries, their chart libraries. And I said to him one day, I said, Mr. Screeter, why am I spending my entire life putting little X's on a piece of paper? He said, did you ever feed chickens? I looked at him. I said, no wonder Eisenhower I had problems. And this was his advice. He said, chickens? I said, no, sir. I said, I'm from the Bronx. Muggers we have, chickens we don't have. And he said, young man, here's how you feed chickens. You take the chicken feed in your right hand, you throw it over your left shoulders, and the birds run to your left. I said, okay. You take chicken feed in your left hand, you throw it over your right shoulder, and they run the other way. I said, okay. He said, and after you do that, he said, look down on the ground. What do you see? He said, little X's. He said, now you know where the birds are going.
1: Oh, fantastic. I thought that was the most
2: profound thing I ever heard on point and figure.
1: Like I said, I've listened to a lot of your interviews, and I don't think I've ever heard you share that story. So I, I feel fortunate that you yep. shared it here on this podcast. Yeah. That's a great story. Then,
2: you know, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. We became yeah. lifetime friends. Oh, yes.
1: Yeah. And so, of course, your first boss was Alan Shaw.
2: No, it was, it was Harold. Harold was my first boss. I worked for a couple of years with him. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then, uh, in fact, Harold sent me to the New York Institute of Finance because I had no financial background at all. You know, I was a history major in college. You know, I didn't I didn't know anything about PE multiples and it. So, and that was one of the classes. Years later, I was taking Alan's class, and Alan asked the students, "Can anyone do a point figure chart?" And I said, I raised my hand. I went up to the board, and I started doing one point reversals, and then I did three-point reversals.
1: When I think about point and figure, it's funny, when my, when I, my first job, I guess in, in charting was 1990, I feel like I was right at the cusp of when we no longer did charts by hand, but I did actually maintain a chart by hand. It was the, of the Bond Futures contract and it was using point and figure method. And yeah. so of course, fast forward to today, and I don't think there's anybody, perhaps certainly <laughs> of the younger generation that, that maintains a chart by hand. And so I, one of the questions I was going to ask you is, do you, having done it for so long yourself, do you feel like, technical analysis has changed as a result of us no longer having to do it by hand. In other words, we used to refer to technical analysis yeah. as being an art. Do you think it's yeah. lost some of the art aspect?
2: One of the reasons why the organization started was Johnny Brooks and I, we'll talk about Johnny in a few minutes. Mm. Johnny and I were accused of being, ah, oh, you guys are just us, you play with paper all day. And that's, that's what bothered us because these fundamental guys were you know, too arrogant. And they thought that uh, uh, you're just playing with paper. You guys not, you can't do anything with the stock market. I got to say, I missed it for one very important reason. Doing the chart, guess what? You get a feel.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you
2: think, oh, yes. Uh, in fact, I try to maintain that without doing the charts. So you know what I have? I have a spreadsheet. It's attached to my Thomson Reuters quote machine. I have a spreadsheet of you name every ETF and all the stocks and the indexes and everything on there. And I put, not the machine, I put the support and resistance levels in. Oh, there you go. And it monitors for them. So whenever anything moves during the day, it lights up. Red if it's breaking down, green if it's breaking out. And I know everything that moves. So I, ha- I kind of still have that feel. I try to capture that feel.
1: So you just try to stay involved in the people. charts as opposed to to just look at them, uh, right? You
2: just, yes, and uh, yeah. but what happens at the end of the day or during the day? I know what what's going on because my spreadsheet's telling me where the action is,
1: right?
2: Where important technical action is because I thought that that. By the way, I identify the trends. And if it's broken trend, it'll flash to me. Major, minor support, major, minor resistance, and trends pop out for me. And then Mm -hmm. I have it where you get a golden cross, a dead cross, it'll flash that. So I like the dynamism. I like to update it. And that's from the original process that I did for many, many years.
1: Right. So you've you've, you've retained the old process, but you've just leveraged technology to the extent that you... It just makes it more efficient for you, yeah. Yeah. So well when seen. you when, your first job as a technician was 1970. 1970- 67. 67. Okay. So you you 68. actually you you that's an interesting perspective. So you got in right at the end of one of the great secular bull runs, and then you spent the whole oh. the, you know many of course 15 or so years in a secular yeah. bear market.
2: Funny you should bring that up because yeah. for the first 10 years of me being in the business whether I was with the mutual fund or with Alan, here the old timers grumbling all the time. Ah, this market. Wow. Yeah. You, you get a good run for about six months and then it go, it'll it retreat the whole darn thing. I mean, we right. traded between 500 and 1,000. It hit 1,000, across 1,000 for like two days. I think it was in 1971 or two, something like that, or maybe in yeah. 73. And, and then it just stayed there until the 80s when it so really started to take off.
1: When it did yeah. start to take off, I'm curious either if you yourself or if you noted amongst other investors, there was a difficulty or, or like a reticence to actually embrace the bull market because of the repeated lessons. No, I, I, I
2: got to say, I have to say that Alan Shaw, and I'm not just saying it because he's an old friend of mine. He was right on. Yeah. He nailed the top just before the Arab oil crisis came in 73, 74. And was the double bottom in 74, early 75, it was right. just
1: perfect. Right.
2: And when it broke out, of that massive double bottom in the early 1975, I believe I'm pretty sure it was. He was. We were right, right on target. I, I have to tell you an interesting story. That top in the early 70s, 72, 73, it was huge on the chart. On a point right. figure chart, you could, and you had. And you had the nifty 50 stocks in those days, you know, IBM, Control Data, Burroughs and Avon products and Mm -hmm. (laughs) names, some names never heard of before. I would, of course, do my point and figure charts. And then when we had the MTA meetings, we'd sit down and be talking and I'd say, Hey, gee, you know, these charts look pretty toppy. And then, then the big debate came up. The guys that followed on balance volume, OBV. Sure. Kept saying, oh, no, don't worry. Don't, because I was starting to see the breakdowns. They were huge breakdowns. He said, no, no, it's light volume. That, that doesn't mean anything. you got to have volume. And it, and it was the volume guys and the price guys staring at each other at these meetings. Fascinating. And I went back to Alan. I said, Alan, I'm having debates with these guys. And, you know, they just tell me, you know, throw away the point and figure chart. And he turned to me and said, remember one thing, young man, bear markets start on light volume. They end on heavy volume. Ah, those, are, those are words that I never forgotten, and, and yeah. they've helped me over the five decades that I've been in the business.
0: Yeah.
2: Those, those are the shoulders of giants that I was standing on.
0: You know, Ralph, when I first came to the Market Technicians Association and got to find out what technical analysis was, we had a conference room that included a full decade of your charts, I believe, of the Dow Jones average, and yes. uh, there was a three ring notebook. Probably about as heavy yeah. as my daughter is now. It must have been <laughs> 600 pages <laughs> that, of, uh, you know, yes. 40 by 40 inch paper. had that, that book, Ralph's first computer. And it was the database yes. of all of the <laughs> the prices, closing pr- closing prices.
2: Yes. That was my database, yes. And in so. hand it's handwritten every day, whatever the high, low, close for the averages were. And they had to calculate the 20-day moving average. Think about it. We'd get up in the morning. First of all, I had to go to Morgan Rogers and Roberts to get the point and figure reversals at 8 o'clock in the morning, come back to the office, start doing that, then doing all the indicators, had to go all through the newspapers and barons to find the levels that we needed and calculate it. And then by the time you did all of that, collect the data, you calculate the data, you plotted the data, the morning was gone. And it wasn't until, I'd say, after lunch when we all sat around and started looking at what we plotted and started questioning things. Yep. Today, the and young generation has no really- idea what we went through.
0: Right, right. I think it's so helpful for our listeners, for anybody who doesn't understand or appreciate that history, to think about technical analysts of the 60s as kind of the first big data analytics departments, where right. there was yeah. a lot of computation, certainly not yeah. starting from, oh, this picture looks like this picture, but rather just a lot of heavy computation. And Ralph, could you share with us what happened to your charts, those full walls from the war room's oh, yeah. Fascinating. Yes. Well, the
2: chart you're talking about is eight feet high, 22 feet long. Mm-hmm. I have that one in my barn. You guys had got to come out. Tyler, you were there. Uh, inside my barn, I have the at Ralph's Museum, and I have all sorts of memorabilia from Wall Street. In fact, thank you very much. Again, I thank you. You gave me the the last big banner of the Market Technicians Association just before we changed name? our name to the TMT Association. So I called Kyle. I said, I don't want that banner. I went and he, thank God, he sent it to me. So it's yeah, It's saved. It's all there. And I was at Kidder Peabody when I left Allen. I started with Allen in 1969. I went to Kidder Peabody in 1970. You want to hear a wonderful story. Kidder Peabody. And you got to remember, there weren't that many technicians in those days. And Kidder Peabot, was a wonderful white suit firm. And it was very old firm, very Bostonian firm. And they had a big office in New York. They never had a technician. They decided one day to have a technician. And the way I hear it is they went to Bob Farrell at Merrill Lynch. And Farrell said, no, nah, I don't want the job. And they went to Allen, apparently. And he didn't want the job. And he found, well, what's the next generation? And they all said, Ralph. <laughs> and they came to me. And they boy, they made it an offer I couldn't refuse. And I went into Alan's office. I said, Alan, I said, I want to take you to lunch. He looked at me. I could see the big question mark on his faces. I could hear him under his breath saying, this guy never takes me out to lunch. <laughs> what's he got to say? <laughs> And we sat down. We went into one restaurant. Alan said, no, I don't want to go here. And then we went to another. I said, no, nah, I don't want to go here. He didn't want to sit down because he knew something was coming. And we finally found a restaurant. And it's a beautiful story. I said to him, Alan, I was made an offer and I, I think it's my time. And he looked at me. He said, with a tear in his eyes, he said, but you don't have a chart room. You don't have charts. And I looked at him. I, had, I dropped my head as if to say, yeah, I know. He said, you go up into that office and fax everything and take it and reproduce it. Wow. The guy gave me, when I went into Kidder Peabody, I had all this stuff that, I had family and friends helping me make charts and everything. And I walked in, I had gold in my hand. That firm had absolutely no idea what I had in my hand when I walked in. And the room was, in fact, it was a converted vault, a bank vault that I had, and it had no windows. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was a big room. In fact, the, the head of director of research, a nice man, he said to me, you're the only analyst I know of that doesn't want windows. <laughs> Fundamental analysts like to look out the windows. I said, I don't want a window. He, he, said, so he walks me into this, but he said, it's too expensive to remove the vault. And I said, all I want you to do on this vault for me is to park the walls and curve the corners. And they did that.
1: And so wow. my chart
2: just curves all the way around. And that chart that you're talking about, uh, Tyler, eight feet high, 22 feet long, I had four of them. So you can imagine how big the room was. And in the middle of it, I had a big table. Where we All of us sat around this table. In the middle of the table was a, a carousel that could move around. On it were all the books holding our library. So you could just pull the books and talk on the phone and do whatever.
0: And there's a yeah, major American institution helping to preserve some of that history now, isn't there, Ralph?
2: Rosemary and I moved from New York to Minnesota. That was about 12, 13 years ago. I went up into the attic, of course, looking for, you know, moving furniture, old furniture, whatever we're going to move. And I found these boxes that I hadn't opened in, in like 20 years. And in it were my charts. My and I had presence of mind years ago to laminate them. So they were in perfect condition. So I called Phil Roth and a few of my buddies in Wall Street. I said, guess what? The, the war room is alive. I have it. And Phil, I believe it was Phil Roth said to me, Ralph, do you have that one wall chart with the three Dow averages, the Dow Industrials, the Dow Transport, and the Dow Utility with all the moving averages and events and all that sort of stuff on them, All hand done. I said, yes. He said, well, you got to bring it down to the Finance Museum in Wall Street. They're doing a, I think, 160th birthday of Charles Dow, something like that. And they all said, and I agreed, it would be a perfect backdrop for the exhibit. So I take it down to the to the museum, and I'm rolling you down the, rolling the chart out on the floor so I could show this lady. And she says, Can I cut it? I said, I'll tell you, you can't cut my chart. <laughs> I, I was walking out the door. She says, No, no, Mr. Akapura. She says, No, no, no don't go. She said, We'll make a cork wall and we'll fasten. And that was the exhibit for the museum. And Six months later, she calls me up and says, Mr. Acapura, she said, the exhibit is closing down in a week. And she said, this is one of the most unique possessions we have in our collection. Would you donate it? I said, absolutely. And then then she tells me that that little library is part of the Smithsonian Institute. If you know anything about the Smithsonian Institute, that's the nation's attic. That's the nation's library. So we have a child hanging somewhere in the United States, and I hope they didn't cut it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty clear by now for all of our listeners that you have a lot of stories, and you've been very generous sharing them over the years. Can you take a moment and tell us the fascinating story about your role in bringing candlesticks to the United States?
2: Oh, wow. Gee, you know that story, huh? I do. You ready for this? I Please. went to Japan for the first time. You ready for the date? December 7th, 1981. It was the 40th anniversary right. of Pearl Harbor.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Yeah. I get off the plane, and my firm didn't tell me about bringing extra cards, been, didn't tell me about bowing and taking my shoes off. And I made all the mistakes the ugly American can make. <laughs> but they were so nice to me because over the years, prior to going there, in the 70s, while working for Allen, at Smith Barney, guess what? We had a lot of interactions with the Japanese. And I believe it was in nineteen seventy-three that the Japanese government finally allowed their insurance companies to buy US equities. They were only gonna buy the big blue chips and you know, but that was their adventure first time. And it was them coming to our office and they were fascinated by our chart room and you know, there were clients I didn't know, but over the years there were friends, you know, friendly clients. And they always came and they loved the chart. So when I went back on that anniversary, for the, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, a lot of the people that I met were the people, same people that I talked to and met in our war rooms, Alan's war room, and then my war, war room at Kidapibati. It was a very, very nice meeting and all. And typical of the Japanese is so gracious and everything. And they bow. And that on leaving The last meeting, leaving, they had their technicians out there, and one of the technicians gave me this book. I looked at it quickly, and I, I, of course, I thanked them and everything. The book, you put it in a sleeve, and you pull it out of the sleeve. It it just fit into a little case. So I get on the airplane, and I'm looking at it, and I'm pulling all the Japanese read from left to right, not right from left. So I had to pull the book out the opposite way, turn it around. Of course, it was all in Japanese. I couldn't read it. I said, oh, well, this is a very nice gift, but what am I going to do with it? I so, said, well, the MTA library at the time was about uh, six, seven years old. I started the library in 1975, and here it is, 1981. So I figured, well, the best thing to do is put the book in the library. Well, unbeknownst to me, several years later, a young analyst from Merrill Lynch goes into the library. He was an MTA member. Why not? His name was Steve Nissen. And apparently, Took the book, he was fascinated by it. Had it translated, and he is the daddy yes. of candlesticks, the candlesticks in the United States. And yeah. It was my book.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that is just I incredible.
2: Ho- I hope we still have. I hope we still have the book in the library. I got to ask someone.
1: I, I would. I would think so. But that, that's just a fascinating story. I envisioned that Steve got on a plane and went and studied candlesticks in Japan or something. But it turns out no, it was Ralph's book. <laughs> Yeah, and the I don't think she knows that. I no, I don't Library. think she
2: knows that. we can have to tell him that. I, I think I have to tell him that.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll leave that up to you. So yes. uh, you've done a lot of interviews and the, there are so many things we can talk about. One of your great contributions and there are, truly are many is actually your book, The Fourth Mega Market. And, and the amount of time you must have spent putting that book together, I can't even attempt to estimate it, but the, the end contribution is just incredible in terms of the essence of the book. Forgive me if I uh, don't do it justice here, but just quickly is is that you went back and you studied the prior mega bull markets. You coined the phrase mega mm-hmm. mega bull markets and you yes. looked for the commonalities, the amount of research that you put into to this book can't be overstated. So I wonder if you can tell us some of the high-level conclusions that you found as it relates to these mega bull markets, and then maybe you can bring us up to speed today. Where are we today in light of what you learned from the past?
2: Let me give you a little history of what brought that book about. In 1995, beginning of the year, we started to have a very strong rising market. And anyone that follows technical knew that we were overbought. And I forgot how many points we went up and what percentages that we didn't have a, a meaningful correction. And it kept pushing higher and higher. And and all of us on the street were saying, "Well, it's going to pause, it's going to consolidate, rotate, and you know all that good stuff." And it wasn't doing that. And I remember one of the old-time technicians that helped us start the organization, Ken Ward of Hayden Stone. When I first met him at a, an MTA meeting, Ken and I met him in 1970. Ken had to be about a, I think he was 75 or 80 years old. And I leaned over. It was like me sitting next to Mickey Mantle. You know who Mickey Mantle is? Of course. (laughs) I was so so excited to be next to him. The meeting was going on. He and I, in fact, Johnny Brooks, the three of us, were talking to each other, and we weren't even paying attention to the the speaker. And I leaned over to Mr. Ward. I said, Mr. Ward, what was the most difficult market? Now, you've got to remember, this is 1970. The guy is 80, I think 80 years old. So he lived most of the bull and bear markets in the 20th century up until that evening and wrote about it. Mm-hmm. So I asked him, I said, well, what was the most difficult market you ever had to write about, Mr. Ward? And I said, oh, forgive me, that's a stupid question. It has to be the crash at 29. And with a grovelly voice, the man said, no, young man, that wasn't the toughest market. The toughest market was the early 60s. I said, but it went up. He said it did. And all of us kept saying, it can't go any higher. It's got to consolidate, got to consolidate. It. it never did. We were wrong. I never forgot that mm. and here we are in 1995 and I went back and I read every Wall Street Journal every day in those days <laughs> I had a cough and go through the dirt, the dust in the New York <laughs> Public Library. It took me a month to read all those papers. <laughs> Today you go online, you get it on your phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we won't talk about <laughs> so <I> had, that. <laughs> yeah, and I read every Wall Street Journal every day for six years that was the beginning of Dow 7,000, my famous report. When it hit 7,000, I was wrong. I thought it would take three years. It only did it in two years. So 1997 hit 7,000. And then I raised it to 10,000. I caught the whole, everybody wanted to know what Ralph was thinking because didn't call it the dot-com bubble in those days, but it was, you know, it was part of the whole thing.
1: Yeah, the leading anyway, up to it, the beginning of it, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the firm, the firm said to me, you know, and they were very supportive of this Kid is going to go, we're going to go, what the where? 10,000. Oh, but we hit 10,000 and they wanted me to write the book. They got me a contract, they got me the book, And they got me the, the publisher and everything. And I, so and I sat down, I said, What in the past have we gone through that was similar to this? And I called it a mega market because it was huge, huge in the sense that it took years. And it was, you know, of course it wasn't straight up. You had many bear markets in between, but from bottom to top, there were major moves And I went back after the Civil War. The only average that was available at the time was the Macaulay average. It was a railroad average, and then I found the Cowles index, right, right. which, by the way, the Cowles index becomes the S&P 500 in 1957. I put it in the book after the Civil War. We had what was called the Gilded Age. People were so excited that the war ended; they wanted to go out and you know, and have fun, and there were new inventions. That was the first industrial revolution was coming about, and and the market just went up dramatically for years. And then the second major event, and I I kept looking at the wars as major events, and it was the, the, the end of the First World War, and then in 1918, 1921, the start of the 21 to 29 the dow went up 400%. People were so excited it was the roaring 20s they called it in the jazz age and people wanted you know have fun and there was a prohibition but you know and everybody knew there were speakeasies and people were having drinks on the side and having a good time. And Ford comes out with his Model A car and everybody had to buy a car. and That was great. And then after the S- Second World War, the same thing again. The war ends. 1950 to 60, early 60s, you had a huge run. And that was a lot of the money that was spent in the war by the government was poured into the society, into everybody's daily life. Sound familiar to what we're doing today? I call the What we're going through right now is the COVID war. Right. You know, we're losing, unfortunately, maybe family members in, uh, passing away, and neighbors and friends and everybody, oh, oh, you know, whether we should wear a mask and social sort distancing? Of yeah, we're unhappy. But the strength in the market recently, in the last year and a half, is saying to me that, you know, once this is over, and the market always looks out three to six months, it says say down the road, this will end again, this will end, and people are going to go travel, they're going to go to restaurants, they're going to spend money, they're going to have a good time. And that's why I think today, if I had a point of phrase that maybe it's the fifth megamark you know, that we're in, and yeah. it has a lot to do with the period of time. Look at what the current administration is doing. They're pouring money into the society. I mean, they're just they give trillions of dollars. Yeah, we're gonna have a problem with uh, inflation at some point, but I don't think I'm not an economist, but I don't think inflation's gonna be a big problem tomorrow morning. Well, those those, those actually
1: those are the two questions that I wanted to ask you as it relates to your studies of, of these mega markets. Was one I seem to recall you saying that during the wartime, the government spends a significant percentage of GDP on advancing technologies to win that war. And then eventually during peacetime, that technology finds its way into the economy just by being commercialized into the consumer markets and things like that. So I'd be curious how you think that's going to play out with respect to what we just did and the money we just spent would be number one. And then number two, when you look at the various mega markets, was there a commonality in the inflation cycles? Were there ever high inflation and the markets did well, or was it always low inflation and low rates? And I asked that, obviously, because the, the big question of today is, are we on the precipice of an inflationary cycle?
2: Well, there was inflation due to the war. There was usually some kind of a recession historically. Now, again, a lot of this happened before the Federal Reserve in 1913 sure. came out, and they actually didn't do well in 1929 crash. They didn't really know what the heck they were doing, but they're a lot better at it today. Yes, I, I think uh, we're going to have Inflation, and my point is, it's the emotions of people. You're talking about a, a world. Well, not only here are we feeling the pain and anxiety; it's all over the world. This is global. You, know, you, don't, think the, you don't think the British want to go travel, and or the poor Indians in India are uh, suffering like crazy. Now, once that is passed and it's over, oh, money's no object. People are going to want to live i think the government's going to be very very accommodating
1: and, yeah. and as it relates to the technology spend that we just oh. went through at the government level seeing that spill oh, over sure. into the economy yeah you still think that's a- oh, absolutely absolutely
2: right. and they're talking now about you know i just saw on tv today uh, uncle sam wants to the government wants to you know really get into making our own semiconductors you know we realized with this whole thing that we got certain industries like the medical what was it uh, the 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 pills or something from overseas in China was making them and
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all this
2: yeah. stuff yeah, yeah, no, no, a lot of that stuff's gonna come back.
0: Oh yeah. yeah. Changing new
1: technology. technology.
2: We we learned a lot with this with this
1: COVID. Yes. Just trying to look for the common themes from mega market to mega market was just this notion that what ended up driving that mega market was not known at the time it started. That's the part that we grapple with. And Ralph, you were mentioning, you know, we have all these terrible headlines and you're talking about India and everything else, but the market is doing what it's doing. And that's the market in its infinite wisdom as the collective wisdom of the crowd, if you will, sniffing out that future. And we can't put our minds around it because we're going through the, the dire circumstances of the moment.
2: Yes, exactly. Exactly. The market is a discounting mechanism. Looking beyond all this. Right. You know, we're going to have a conversation, you and I, the three of us, maybe five years from today, we'll look back and say, you know, look at this. The market was going up in anticipation of this, this, and this. Right. Yeah. Right. That's That's what we can identify now. Yes.
1: Yeah. That's a really important observation it's just a a tremendous contribution on your part because i think that really bore out from the data that you presented in in your fabulous book i I have to tell you i'm pretty excited about your next book because i understand you're writing on another book Uh,
2: this book is going to be if if anyone likes history you're going to love this book yeah, And I only say that because, well, let me tell you quickly, I uh, am asked periodically to give lectures at St. Thomas University, which is a wonderful university here in St. Paul, Minnesota. And after I give a lecture or two and I participate in classes, I usually invite the students and some of the professors out to my barn and they can see some of what Tyler was talking about before, the big charts inside. And then I take them around. You heard about my painting outside the uh, exterior walls of my... I have the entire history of the stock market. Yes. Going back from 1857, that was the Macaulay Railroad Average. And then it picks up the Jones Index. And of course, in the late 1800s, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average and Railroad Average. And I have everything and all the history. And while walking around with the dean of the school and the students, I turned to her I said, you know, dean, I said, I get a sense that the young students today have no sense of economic or financial history. And she turned to me and the other professors all looked at me and said, you're absolutely right. We don't teach a class on economics history or financial history. And she yells at me. She says, I want you to write a book and incorporate this whole chart that you've got here with all the, with all the recessions and everything. And that was the start of the book. And I got to tell you, I was going to start right where my wall started in fifty seven Then I realized, hey, 81 years before that, we signed the Declaration of Independence. I can't talk about economics unless I go back to the beginning. Wow. And I realized that economics and finance are not standalone subjects. What was the president doing or didn't do that caused some reaction in the economy? You know, you know what happened to the first national bank? Andrew Jackson, number seven president of the United States, canceled the bank. He didn't like it. He wanted states banks. He didn't want a federal bank. He wanted states to create their own paper money and uh, not backed by gold or silver. Oh, it was, I mean, and the debate about currency goes on for at least a hundred years. It's fun. I, I really, really
1: enjoy. What a contribution this, this will be. I am so excited for it. I can't. When did you have an estimate for when you think it'll be done? Not to put oh, you on the
2: spot. Oh, I, I, Everybody asks me that. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I know it's going to be 25 chapters. I've completed chapters one through four where I feel comfortable with, mm. but it's gonna it's gonna take another couple of years. Good I wrote reason. a
1: chapter for a textbook on technical analysis, and just that one chapter alone took me. I think it was nine months. So twenty five or twenty four chapters sounds like a daunting task.
2: <laughs> I asked Sam Stovall to give me a paragraph put in the book. Who's a better historian? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I asked Marie Barra if she would write a couple of know. paragraphs on. What it was like getting TV on the floor of the stock exchange. She changed the world. Right. That woman did. In fact, the studio on the floor, I call it the the house that Maria built. (laughs) (laughs) I I want it in her own words. And she's been very kind to do that. And I'm going to ask some of my old buddies to talk about the history. You know, get it from them, too. They were there. Art cash and I hope you response to my email you know what was it like art when you got on the floor in 1960 what was it like trading on the floor in the 50s and 60s you know wow. he was there early right
1: yeah. did you study history at any point or did, you, or did you just grow to have an affinity for history because of technicals and studying cycles and uh, things
2: like i i think i think it's in my dna right? yeah. i was a history political science major in college what happened i'll tell you the story i went to college in the early 1960s, and in my sophomore year, I was offered a a weekend job being a tour guide in Washington, D.C., they would fly me down and I'd be a so I had to take an exam, of course. The police department of Washington and District of Columbia had certain exams. So I had to study. I could tell you the Washington Monument is 555 feet, five and one eighth inches tall. <laughs> I mean, I have a lot of factors. Yeah. I could tell you there are several presidents buried in Washington. Uh, William uh, Howard Taft is in Arlington National Cemetery. Kennedy's in, in National Cemetery. Woodrow Wilson, people don't realize that he's in the National Cathedral. He's buried in the National Cathedral. So I, I have this love for history. I don't know. Did I, I think, Tyler, you know this. On my bucket list, yes. since I as a tour guide, I took them to George Washington's home in Mount Vernon. And, you know, so I saw a lot of presidents. And then I, so my bucket list is to go to every presidential library, home, grave site. I've done them all. No kidding. Yeah, and I'm going to write about them in the book. So I have this affinity to history, yes.
0: Fantastic. Ralph, if if I could take us back for just a second to the discussion of what could be the fifth mega market. You've been attributed as coining the phrase, the bigger the base, the higher in space, and the higher the top, the bigger the drop. Yeah. For you, I mean, I know in our household, two years with an entirely sweatpants wardrobe, we're ready to dress up even without an occasion. And I certainly like the thesis of coming back for the roaring 2020s. Where would you yeah. measure the, the bear market? And would you take it back as far as January of 2018? Or are you looking just at you know the, the collapse that was very quick from February of last year?
2: That's a wonderful question. If you're talking COVID, you got to actually start with March of last year.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Now, were we in a bull market up to that point? The answer is yes, we were. And it actually started after the 2007-2008 subprime disaster. That Mm -hmm. low in 2009 was the beginning of this mega market. Again, mega markets last decades could be a couple of decades. And you do have bear markets in between. Of course, the accelerated decline when the COVID hit exaggerated everything. That wasn't an economic situation. That was a panic. I think that low is of another leg up in this mega market.
1: Do you see anything in the markets that would suggest to you that investor concerns about rising inflation is something that the market's actually concerned about?
2: Yes, it is concerned short term. Yes. Yeah. And I think the headlines and everything has got everybody spooked. Now you got Bitcoin falling out of bed. And, you know, so it's playing on it each other. If we just stop for a second, go back two weeks ago before this news came out. I remember giving a couple of conference calls and then saying to everybody, I said, well, the market's really strong. both the dollar's up and, blah, blah, and all that sort of stuff. I said, and I, I remember saying to one group, I said, God, I got a nosebleed looking at the, the Dow and the S&P it's straight up. I mean, it's got to pause somewhere. Yeah, and that's exactly what we're getting now. That pause is being aggravated by this news. So instead of maybe a three to five percent decline, maybe get a ten percent decline. So what? Mm. That's a twenty dollars stock going to eighteen. Hey, look at that's twenty dollars stock, and my book's going to forty.
1: <laughs> now that's a, that's great perspective, actually.
0: Sticking yeah. with your love of Dow theory and and your expertise in the oh, area. Okay. Can yes. you talk to us a little bit about how that has changed? I mean, in terms of the different types of companies that are in the, the transportation average yes. now, you talked about yes. the U.S. bringing semiconductors back into, you know, our own production facilities and changing our supply yes. chains. How has it changed?
2: How has it changed? I, I got to say, that's a wonderful story because one of the main, one and no one talks about this. I don't think anyone knows it except me and Brooksy, and unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. In the very, very beginning of the MTA, I'm talking about the early 70s, 69, 70, when we were finally warming up to each other and saying, gee, you know, this is fun. At that time, it was called the Dow Jones Railroad Average. And we'd all sit around the table and say, well, you know, uh, Dow Jones should change that average because you have other things other than railroads moving products around the country. So I believe, I've got to ask him, Bob Farrell, I think Alan, a couple of the old timers I think they went to the Bastille and knocked on the door of the Dow Jones company. I think they were partly responsible for the Dow Jones company changing or updating the indicator because then all of a sudden they put airlines in there and they put truckers in there. And, you know, I was always fascinated with Dow theory. In fact, Richard Russell, you mentioned his name, was the living guru of Charlie Dow. Over the years, I got to meet him. A very interesting guy, and lived in La Jolla, California. There was a very popular show called Wall Street Week, which started right around the time we started EMTA, the MTA, early 1970s. Apparently, Lou Ruckheiser, the host of the show, wanted to do an evening on Theory, And I believe, I, I know, I was told that he contacted Richard Russell out in California, wanted him to come to Owens Mills, Maryland, where the show was, and to do a live interview. And apparently, Richard Russell turned him down. And there was a lady, one of the panelists, her name is Gail Zudek, former president of the MTA and a, and a former student of mine. And that's how I got to know Gail. She told Lou, she said, well, I know another guy who really writes Dow Theory on the East Coast. And that was me. And in fact, I think it was in the early 70s that, you know, when Alan said, OK, you got to start writing. now. I started writing about Dow Theory. And one of our past presidents, he said, "Ralph, you're uh, you're writing Dow theory, and everybody was reading my, even my competitors were reading my interpretation, because I I was very very dogmatic about the the rules and all of the notation on Dow theory." So Gail said to TV host, she said, "Well, Ralph Acampo is the guy, the second guy you should call on Dow theory," and I went on the show in 1978. That was the beginning of, you know, my love affair with Dow Theory. And, you know, not too long ago, oh gosh, maybe it was five, six years ago, someone was questioning Dow Theory. Oh, come on, Ralph. That's old stuff. It doesn't work anymore. We have more sophisticated things. People go online and buy stuff online, so you don't need those airlines and truckers anymore. And I said to her, I said, this lady it was giving me a hard time. I said to her, I said, you're right. You know, times are different. People shop differently and do things. Like I said, but you know what? Who moves all those boxes, Federal Express and UPS? And guess what? <laughs> we need the Dow Jones. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so it is relevant today. It is still yeah. relevant.
1: Yeah. And so yeah. your your answer would be that maybe you can make some modifications for the idea that semiconductors are a big part of the economy, but at the end of the day, the essence of that yeah. notion that that Dow put forth 120 some odd years ago is still as relevant today as it was back then.
2: The makers of products, the industrials, and the guys that ship it. Oh, there they are. And we move. If your if your wife shops like my wife, <laughs> I, I swear to God, there are boxes outside my door every morning, and they and the FedEx guy and the UPS guy know my dog. They they pet my dog, and they wave to me, and they take off. I, I have to carry the boxes in. Seriously. Yeah. And, and Rosemary says, oh, I don't chop at all. I don't chop at all. But <laughs> no, she does. She gets delivered. Seriously. I mean, it's classic. It's beautiful. My dog, Henry, is about six years old now. He weighs 269 pounds, and he's my best friend. Yeah. He's an English master, but that's why I call him Henry VIII. He's a Brit. A wonderful, gentle, gentle dog. He really is.
1: So in your, I believe, over 50 years in, in the business, as we're sort of wrapping up here, I'm definitely appreciative of the time you spent with us here. What would you say was or are some of your most enduring lessons that you've learned over the years?
2: You have to respect one thing, price. Mm-hmm. I appreciate all the indicators that we have, RSR, MACD, Bollinger Bands, of and all that. Those are indicators. I tell anyone who cares to listen. And the most important price on the chart, most important price, you know what the most important price is? The current price. Mm. So you look from right to left, not left to right. That's how you read a chart, from right to left. to right right And you just go back with your left hand across the chart. Here I am today. Where did I come from? Put that trend line in there. And you know what? I see these guys on television drawing lines on charts and with their finger. And they don't know what they're doing. They don't know. Seriously, read the definition of a trend line uptrend is higher lows and higher highs. Remember that. Downtrend is lower highs and lower lows. And if you run them correctly, that's your best friend. Mm. There's a trend. Right. And then you look at the momentum. I don't own the RSI. I own that price.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
2: I make it as simple as possible. It's going yes. up, going down. Yeah. I got a problem.
1: The discussion you had, you had mentioned earlier about between the folks who were analyzing price and the folks who were analyzing volume. And of course, mm. price one out because you're not trading volume. And I think it was, you, you would know better than anybody. In, in, but in, even in Dow theory, although they do address oh. volume, they did conclude that it, that it's not something that you should act on only because even volume itself is in the price.
2: That's right. Yeah. Exactly. You've been doing your reading. Good for you. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. I, I taught it for a little bit, not as long as you did, but. Oh,
2: <laughs> uh, that's all right. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. yeah. That's wonderful. Right. It's something that we all love. And I appreciate you guys. Picking at the banner and you're the current generation, the new generation of taking care of the organization and spreading the word. In this book that I, I'm writing, I'm doing a history of economics and finance and all that stuff. Where you, I picked up one of the books, which was actually in my library, and I hadn't seen it in years. It's called The Gold Standard, A 50-Year History of the CFA Charter. I'm going to take pieces out of wow. this book and put it in my book. Oh, yeah. And they wow. talk about the CFA, They started talking about the CFA in the 40s, 1940s, but it took them almost 20 years before they actually had an exam. When we started the MTA, we looked at the CFA and said, you know, they did all the arguing whether it was, and then they realized the industry needed a body of knowledge, these analysts, and they needed ethics. And that's part of everything that we do. We gave you guys are keeping that body analogy, keeping it updated. And that's all, again, it's just the gold standard for technical analysis.
0: We would not be here without you. I share what most people have experienced. That is, you spend an hour with Ralph Akampora, you're going to want to learn more about technical analysis. We are so grateful to you. But as we're coming to the end of the interview, I just, I need our listeners to hear directly from you. One of the most important contributions that you've made to the organization and to the whole discipline of technical analysis, and that is with regard to the CMT program. We're oh, yeah. sitting here in 2021, and we have you know a fantastic consolidated curricula. We publish these books with Wiley. We have test takers all over the globe in 137 countries. But it wasn't always like that. I wanted to ask you about the most important day in modern technical analysis history, and if you'd care to share how that process went.
2: It's Friday, December 17, 2004. This is the most important date in modern technical analysis history. Myself. Ken Tower, Barry Sine, David Krenov. We stood in front of about 10 or so SEC lawyers, and they flew them in from Washington to me. But my story starts before that. I was president on 9-11 for the organization, and I happened to be in Europe when it happened. I was just horrified like everybody else. Oh, my God. I was so nervous because we had two employees at the time, two ladies, Maria and Shelly. And I didn't know if they got out alive. And well, and I couldn't talk to anybody in New York. The phones were down and I had to call Johnny Brooks, my buddy in Atlanta, Georgia. So he was telling me what was going on and that everybody made it out of the building. Phil Roth made it out of the building. And I was so grateful that it was all done. Well, after when I got home, we decided to have a summit meeting, in the words of Johnny Brooks. And at the summit meeting, I said to them, we've got to reinvent the MTA. And Bernadette Murphy, God bless her soul, came up to me and said to me, you know what you've got to do, Ralph? We've got to have this exam. We've got to have it done professionally, just like the CFA exam is done. So I outsourced it, and the new word in my vocabulary, our vocabulary, became psychometric. Psychometric is the science of giving tests, okay? Fast forward a bunch of years, three years, actually, after we outsourced the exam, we're in front of these lawyers in 2004. One of the lawyers said to me, you know, if your exam wasn't psychometrically done, you wouldn't be allowed in the elevator of this building. (laughs) So David Carell spoke three minutes on the history of the subject. Ken Tower spoke three minutes on the history of the organization. Barry spoke three minutes on the history of the exam. And I had the last five minutes. And I got up and I said to the lawyers, imagine if tomorrow morning you lawyers are being mandated to take the medical boards. They're looking at me like I'm crazy. I said, assuming you could pass the medical board, you would use this body of knowledge in your daily work as lawyers and all going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, that's what you're asking me to do. And I got on my knees. I said, please test me on my body of knowledge. We're not better than, but we, we complement the fundamental side. With that, a lawyer jumps up and says, oh, Ralphie, we see you on television. You're a nice guy. And he shoves a chart in my face. And he says, what's fact on this chart? Oh, my knees are like rubber. I said, oh God, he's asking that a question. And I looked at it. I said, price is a fact. And his eyes got very big. And I put my finger, I was pounding on his chest. I said, and earnings are an estimate. You restate earnings, you never restate this chart. He said, best answer I ever heard.
1: That's
2: the truth. That to me is the most important date because three months later, thank God, we got our accreditation.
0: And that accreditation means and the exemption of the Series 86 exam, correct?
2: Yep, exactly. Yes. Series 86 and 87 we got exempted from.
0: Ralph, I'm so thankful for the time that I've been able to spend with you over the years and, and certainly for you taking time out of what is still a very busy life for you in Minnesota. Really appreciate you taking time to share this with us today. Any other well, final words that you want to share with all of our listeners, not just the, the CMT community and the members of the Charter Market Technicians Association, but everyone else who's out there that's considering getting involved in the markets or considering you know, a career and learning more about technical analysis?
2: Just... Follow the trend. I think it was Bill Clinton had a headline comment. He said, "Follow the trend line, not the headline." <laughs> and I love that quote. <laughs> make it make it simple, guys. Because I, you know, I love the, all the technology we have and all the, you know, I watch all these TV shows and have all these indicators and lines on the chart. And, and, and you know, you it's like putting tinsel on a Christmas tree. After a while, you put all that tinsel and, and the light bulbs and all that sort of stuff on, you lose the tree. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when all these indicators, all of a sudden, it's so confusing. All I say to you is just take a lot of that step back and look at the trend. Trend's your friend.
0: Trend is your friend. Ralph, thank you so much. Looking forward to seeing you again soon when we're all back together at Travel reopen. Yes until then
2: you got to come out to the farm buddy and
0: and
1: i was going to ask you if you could maybe send us um, some pictures that we can provide in the episode notes for our viewers because they have to see what you've done it's really truly spectacular Uh, my concern though is that the market's gone past the top of the barn hasn't it
2: (laughs) yeah yeah i uh... The Wall Street Journal came out. They wanted to do a story in, in 2017. I said, wait for a little bit. I said, when the Dow goes through 23,000, you can entitle the article, the market went through the roof.
1: And they <laughs> literally. <waited. laughs>
2: yes, it literally that's, went through that's, the roof. <laughs> that's, that's great. Yeah, it's fun. Okay, I'll well, send you some pictures.
1: Please do. And we're, we're definitely looking forward to the book and just echoing yeah. Tyler's sentiments. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for all that you've done for the community, uh, for investors at large.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to Tyler to do the eight sessions on basic technical analysis. And I think uh, everyone should just, I have wonderful slides and I do the basic stuff. Uh, I think after 50 years of teaching, I I think I I can present it in a very simple and meaningful
1: way. Yeah, I've seen your presentations. You do it very, very well.
0: 50 Thank years you. at the New York Institute of Finance. Yeah. I think that teaching is worth preserving and sharing with the rest of the world that can't make it to the corner of broad and wall. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, with. guys. Fill the Gap is brought to you with support from Optima. In addition to candidate study of the official CMT curriculum, Optima provides a full video course on all of the material that candidates need to know for each level of the CMT exams. Each course is broken up into modules ranging from 15 to 45 minutes, depending on the complexity and length of the topics being covered. Learn more at Optima.com. Tyler, what do you have for
1: us this month in terms of updates for the CMT Association? I know there's always something going
0: on. What have you got for us this month? Well, there's never a dull moment, Dave, let me tell you. (laughs) For the last 25 years, the organization has committed itself to advancing the discipline of technical analysis, and it's really the members who do that. One of the ways that we measure tremendous success in the field is through the Charles H. Dow Research Competition. So for new ideas in price analysis and technical market analysis, and this year's winner is none other than McKenna Barbara for her paper on the efficacy of modified momentum based technical indicators on US equities. Really incredible story. Ran the student managed investment fund in college. She actually started learning about technical analysis before grad school when she took a course with Julie Dahlquist, a fellow CMT. Fantastic. And so we're really looking forward to sharing her study of parabolic SAR and having her present on a webcast coming up this summer probably in July. So that sounds
1: uh, really interesting. That sounds really, we haven't had a chance to read it yet, but that sounds like a
0: really interesting paper. Absolutely. And it's all based in (laughs) empirical studies of actually running money. So looking forward to that and encourage all of our members and anybody else who's listening to check out those Dow award-winning papers that have really defined the field. The other thing I wanted to mention is just a, a series of well wishes to all of our CMT candidates who are sitting for their exams. This podcast is airing on June 11th. So we're coming to the end of the June administration, but we really appreciate everybody around the world who has put in countless hours preparing for those exams, studying, and and hopefully we've had a, a really good turnout, both in terms of the remote proctoring as well as the live exam centers. We're not quite through the COVID pandemic, globally speaking. So I know there are a lot of candidates who've had to make some last minute arrangements for remote proctoring out of their natural exam centers but we wish everyone great success and appreciate everybody being in the program. And finally, Dave, I wanted to mention an upcoming event for those of you who are still on the learning path. The CMT European investment summit is coming your way July 1st and 2nd. We'll feature the work of just the best of the best in money management and market research from Europe, members of the CMT association and others who are going to share sort of their take on the macroeconomic view across asset classes and the technical tools and process that they employ on behalf of their firms and clients. So stay tuned for more information about the CMT European Summit coming up on July 1st and 2nd. And that's it for Association Business, Dave.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much, Tyler.
0: Thank you, Dave. And I'll see you next time. We'll see you.